This is your host, Bruce Ash, broadcasting live from the third level of my underground bunker located in Coronado, California, where the men are strong, the women are good looking, and the parents are convinced their kids are way above average. I'm welcoming you to a reaffirming the Constitution edition of Inside Track. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. And thanks for tuning in this afternoon. We have an action-packed show for you today. I'm here live in studio with our national security expert, security expert retired Navy Captain Robert Wells. In just a few minutes, former congressman and ambassador to the Holy See, Francis Rooney, joins us. After the bottom of the hour break, we'll be chatting with author Christopher Blattmerg discussing his new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War, and the Paths to Peace. We welcome your calls today on the Essential Live Line, Essential Pest Live Line, at 790-2040. And before we get going, let me remind you once again that Inside Track is brought to you by great supporters such as Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus, Eric Rudin from Essential Pest Control, and Joy and Allie at Corazon Cabinets, and Robert Stoddard from Right Flight. Also supporting Inside Track is my friend and the aforementioned Eb Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. All of our sponsors are locally owned, family-run businesses you can depend upon. Eb and I do, so should you. <clears throat> Before we get to our guests this afternoon, I'd like the opportunity to share a few thoughts on what has been an extraordinary week where we've seen a reaffirmation of our rights as citizens protecting each of us against the whims of our government to restrict our lives and liberties guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. On Wednesday, we read of Justice Thomas' historic opinion in the New York rifle and pistol case overturning an archaic concealed carry uh, state law in New York that had been in effect for over 100 years that restricted citizens' rights to defense. It was finally overturned six to three. This decision will save the lives of many in that state who can now legally protect themselves. It is also a message to criminals and other bad doers. Their days of terror are over. Then Friday, both Roe and Dobbs decisions were handed down by the court in favor of life for the unborn, ending five decades of millions of lives denied by a law without any reservation by perhaps one of the worst decisions since Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott. Protecting life is an admirable American belief as guaranteed in both the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. The court was right to return the question of life to individual states. It is my personal hope in our country's history this history of death and destruction will be now over and it'll strictly be up to the states to decide the question of life under our system of federalism. Rejoice. God must be still looking over the greatest nation in the world. Mr. Producer, let's go ahead and take our first break. I know it's a little early. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with our special guest, Ambassador Francis Rooney. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. 
but I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Instead of an activity where every kid gets a trophy, those who graduate from Wright Flight get to fly a plane. But only if they get good grades, are well-behaved, and pass a written test. I'm Robin Stoddard, an ex-fighter pilot. I founded Wright Flight because I knew it could help kids reach new heights in their schools, homes, and communities. Endorsed by educators at every level, nonprofit Wright Flight has changed thousands of lives since 1986. Learn more at WrightFlight.org. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or wilkinsonwealthmgmt.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Our guest until the bottom of the hour is Ambassador Francis Rooney. Our guest has enjoyed a successful career as a business leader and served in Congress from fourteen uh, from Florida's 19th District from 2017 to 2021. And when we last spoke to Mr. Rooney, he had just left his position serving as our ambassador to the Holy See. Mr. Rooney later wrote a book, The Global Vatican, he speaks to us about Russia's unprovo- unprovoked war against Ukraine. Hey, thank you for joining us, uh, Ambassador Rooney. Bruce and I are pleased to have you here. Thank you for having me on. Hello, Ambassador Rooney. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're having a hard time. Tom? Thank you for having me on. Okay, we're getting better here. Hey, um, you wrote in your recent opinion piece on the Hill, if Putin wants a Cold War... The world should give him one. There are some Americans who might question that strategy. Who's right? Well, I think I'm right. I think that we should find all non-military options for containing the the, uh, uh, aggressive hegemonic uh, tendencies of Putin and the Russians. And the easiest thing to do is to look back to history of the 1948 Truman Doctrine, which was written by a guy named George Kennan in the State Department, where we contained them. We cut them off. And we said, okay, you want to be what you are, communist. You can have your own trade market within yourself, but you're not going to trade with us. And they devolved into a small economy with very limited goods, 
And now we've had 40 years of Russians enjoying the, the, the uh, fruits of free enterprise in the West. Let's see how they like it. Okay, so basically the Truman Doctrine from uh, 1947 to 1989, then the wall came tumbling down. We had the uh, limited expansion of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Russians, for the first time since 1918, experienced freedom. Uh, what are some of the things that we can do economically or militarily to give Putin that Cold War that uh, he wants? Yeah, well, the whole idea of the uh, isolation is to avoid is to give an alternate to military involvement. And that is economic blockade, okay? You say, we're not going to trade with you. Our companies are going to pull out. You can't trade with us. We're not going to send you parts for your airplanes. We're going to round up all the um, boats and jets and things of, of the oligarchs. You know, you got to remember that Putin and his oligarchs basically stole half of the economy of Russia. So, so go ahead. shut him down. Well, we shut them down. Okay, now, uh, seizing the jets, seizing the private planes, uh, the mansions of the oligarchs, how is that going to put enough pressure on Putin to back down? Well, if I were an oligarch, I would sooner or later come to the conclusion that Putin's wrong. They're taking all my things. I'm not sure I like that. Okay. And if you get enough of them, maybe they would take some action. Okay, we've got with us uh, Bob Wells, retired Navy captain, uh, national security. Bob has some questions. Bob? Uh, good morning, Ambassador. How are you doing, sir? Great. How are you, Bob? I'm doing great. Looking at the strength of, uh, of the Russian energy economy and looking at the reality in terms of uh, what happened after the end of the Cold War and then Putin's intent to develop his energy resources, resources uh, can you look a little bit more uh, specifically as to how we use the energy lever to contain uh, Mr. Putin. I think we're doing some of that now with our with our engagement with the European Union, uh, with the uh, different states with liquid LNG uh, imports and natural gas, but we still have the oil area, which is still very important for Putin's coffers and trade. What do you think, sir? Well, I, yeah, I think it's a horrible mistake that Germany particularly stayed mm -hmm. so reliant on, on Russian oil and gas. And President Bush tried to uh, change that in 2002. He knew it was a problem when he first got elected. And uh, Schroeder wouldn't hear of it. And so they stayed with the cheap gas from Russia instead of LNG from us, which, as you probably know, at least $4 in MCF to get over there. So there's a price window. And, and now they're kind of stuck, and we're doing everything we can do. I understand every uh, resource that can be deployed is being deployed to build natural LNG facilities in uh, the Baltics to be able to receive American uh, gas, just like Algeria is supplying Spain and Italy and uh, the people that need it in the Med. But uh, it's a huge mistake. And, and the Schroeder guy, as soon as he ceased being president of Germany, what did he do? He went on the board of Rosneft, and he was the leading proponent proponent for the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Right. Well, I see where the uh, pipeline is, and our own uh, U.S. Uh, policy planning staff, in particular, uh, Ambassador Toria Newland, looking at the diplomacy with Germany and also looking at 
not bring not being able to bring on Nord Stream two is an important uh, you know policy position. But going further on your if Putin wants a Cold War, we should give it to him. Obviously, you've got a new economic relationship uh, outside of Europe with China, and you look at some of the uh, out, outreaches. Uh, you know, this last week they had Xi Jinping at the BRIC summit. Putin was heralded, but China is a is an important uh, player to basically see. Uh, how a policy could be implemented to further isolate Mr. Putin. What are, you, what are your thoughts about having Russian oil being able to be traded between Russia and China? Well, well, I, first of all, I agree with you. China is a 900-pound gorilla. I mean, Russia is a limited player. There's only so much they can do. Uh, they have a little extra power right now because of Germany's poor energy policies. But at the end of the day, our problems are about China. The problems of our kids and grandkids are about China. And uh, it doesn't really bother me if they buy Russia's oil. They've been buying half of Iran's oil for years. They're going to buy oil from somebody. And so the world will probably devolve into the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc, kind of the way it was mm-hmm. during the common turn era. And, um, you know, the good thing for the United States is that we are basically energy independent. And we're certainly energy independent in the Western Hemisphere when you throw in Argentina and Colombia. Mm-hmm. Look to, looking at uh, another power lever that Mr. Putin is, is actually uh, developing in Ukraine, and that is food. And if you're looking at what's occurring in the eastern part in Donbass and also along the littoral in the Black Sea, you've got Ukrainian food exports that are ready to be... Uh, exported you know through the coastal cities on the black sea there but you have denial uh, by the russians uh, not not just uh, from their navy but also from the artillery barrage what are your thoughts with regard to the food uh, export food security to remove that power from mr putin and to get it back to where it needs to be with regard to uh, the transport of food to the world and looking at key nations that really rely on food from Ukraine, including Egypt, uh, parts of the Middle East, and also uh, Eastern Europe, sir? You know, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm not sure any of us fully under appreciated the um, impact of Soviet Georgia and certainly the Ukraine in wheat production and how vul- vulnerable so many countries were to their uh, distribution of, of uh, agricultural products. And um, I don't know that I would be for, I would like to get your thoughts on, should we go in there militarily, Navy-wise, control those corridors to let that wheat leave the Ukraine, or would that be an escalation that we're not really ready to deal with? Uh, that's a great question, and I've thought about it quite a bit. And if I, in fact, I've, I've texted a few leaders within the U.S. government with regard to a possible option, which would be U.S.-led, not NATO-led. If you look at some of the uh, independent Uh, maritime regimes we've had uh, for example with Somalia we had the international transit corridor to basically protect shipping going into the Bab el Mandeb and into the Arabian Sea against the pirates Uh, you can do something similar you know do it do it first use the British Admiralty uh, to come up with the respected independent international corridor in the Black Sea uh, using some of the elements of the Montreux Convention working with the Turks working with the the Bulgarians and the Romanians, and basically have a U.S.-led uh, naval force 
come in and, and offer protection. Now, there certainly Odessa is the only free port that does not have the Russian uh, presence, but they do have still have the blockade there. So there'd have to be some uh, military uh, kinetic uh, solutions from the Ukrainians to to deal with the Russians there in order them for them to fight to get uh, their exports out. But I I think if we plan it it could be achieved and it could be used diplomatically to tell the Russians and also get the UN authorities like uh, Bush 41 did to basically support the export of food uh, since it shouldn't be a weapon to the world and that particular framework would be able to be diplomatically communicated you know to our embassies uh, that have food needs that are traditionally supplied by the Ukrainians but I think it could be done I, I think doesn't need to be kinetic, but certainly, like we do with maritime operations, we could communicate our intent and basically achieve and have a mission put together and communicate that to the Russians uh, diplomatically. Bob, I'm going to jump in. Are you essentially equating the Russians to the Somali pirates? I mean, it's okay that you are. I just want to understand what you're saying. What I'm saying because is... Because if that's the case, then we're going in there basically to open essentially a, a channel or a canal for these trades to take place and, and blocking the Russians' intervention. Is, is that essentially what you're saying? I'm saying that because it's a lawless... Uh, they're flouting the law and the international norms of the Montreux Convention as well as the uh, independent EEZs, the uh, economic zones that Romania, Bulgaria, Ukraine have. Russians have Nova Assist. They have interests as well. But in you can put put together a uh, a legal framework, and you can authorize it by the United Nations with a food uh, goal. And mm-hmm. it's not unlike lawless piracy on the seas, where you're denying freedom of the seas, which is a fundamental principle of the United States and and of the world in the UN Convention. So uh, it could be done. I can see it designed, and it's something that uh, I think should be act- actively considered. Final point. Uh, the NATO meeting is uh, next week, and I would I would certainly say that the Atlantic Council would probably uh, look at that particular uh, issue with regard to food and food security as, as part of an agenda item. Thank you. Okay. Hey, uh, Bruce wants to jump in here real quick. Bruce? Thanks, Ambassador, for joining us today. Um, it's been quite some time since you appeared on the show with uh, uh, the host, uh, uh, now late uh, founder, Emil Franzi. Thanks for coming back uh, with us today. Thank you. Uh, so I have uh, two questions. The first is a, a question related back to what Bob and Eb and yourself have been talking about the last couple of minutes. Um, there's a big difference between um, uh, fending off uh, Somali pirates who were basically in little skiffs that they uh, motored around uh, in the water uh, versus uh, Russian uh, ships of war who have ship-to-ship uh, missiles and so on. Um, look, I think we all want to avoid a conflict, a military conflict, the kinetic uh, conflict that Bob spoke about. Um, how, how practical is it, in your view, Ambassador, that uh, that sort of a uh, channel might be able to be set up without potentially escalating the war? Well, look, I think to, I think to include us. Ahead, okay, yeah, this would have to be uh, led by have UN level support, 
It would have to be broad. It would have to encompass all those countries that need the food that we would be showing them that we are that they're on the right side of history by backing us and and therefore put the Russians into a box that their aggression would stand out uh, even more. Do you agree with that, Bob? That's what you're, what you're saying, right? I do, and I think if they could see it, you know, they could look at what the plan would be and you develop that consensus at the United Nations, I think uh, we would win that particular uh, UN uh, Security Council, or they probably abstain, but it'd be a General Assembly type of affirmation, which could be used legally to uh, demarche and to work with our partners and then have it either a special contact group, uh, U.S., U.K., Romania, uh, Germany, to basically provide assets. And then to, to Bruce's point, uh, looking at the kinetic possibility of the Russian Federation Navy, they've lost five ships. They now have harpoon missiles, uh, Ukraine does, and they also have a tactical uh, surveillance network now that know where the Russian capabilities are. So, and final, finally, the United States has a direct channel through the incidents at sea. I used to be on uh, that particular mission. Uh, I've been in Moscow, sat across from the Russian Federation officers before, but it would be a calculated risk basically to basic to cease and desist uh, and allow the international corridor to provide uh, food transit and it would also be underscored by the Montreux convention uh, with the Turks and since they are responsible for the waterway allowing additional warships uh, to pass through the Bosporus into the Black Sea yeah um, I like ambassador. the politics of it too the politics of it would be it's like the reverse of the Cuban Missile Crisis Instead of stopping Russia from aggressive weapons, we are providing the world food that they need. That's right, Ambassador. Let me let me ask a let me ask a delicate question. The, the time that we have remaining, uh, your book, The Global Vatican, talked about the Vatican and uh, global diplomacy. Uh, Pope Francis recently announced that that it was Ukraine that provoked the Russians into their war with Ukraine. Agree or disagree, and how smart or how not smart, was it, for the Pope to say what he did? I'm glad you brought that up. I just wrote an op-ed this week in a Fox published about that very point. I, I don't get where this Pope Francis is on dissembling and refusing to call out Russia. And how can he talk about, he talked about something called the Little Red Riding Hood Syndrome. Well, is not the butchery that they perpetrated in Ukraine bad enough to call them out? I, I wish we had Benedict or John Paul back in there. I think a lot of us do right now, especially yeah. when uh, when Russia is uh, is every time their situation gets a bit fraught, uh, they are they are uh, jostling around, uh, threatening nuclear weapons, either theater nuclear weapons or or strategic weapons. It's a it's a pretty frightening uh, uh, thing to to behold. Ambassador Rooney, uh, we're up on a hard break. Where can people find more of the articles that you're having published? Um, you know, we've had you on the show before. We'd like our, our listeners to be able to find you a little easier. Yeah, well, the one about the Pope was on Fox, and the Cold War one was, I think, on the Hill. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, and thank you for your service to our country. That, that goes uh, without uh, question, uh, and we hope to have you on a, on a show sometime in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Mr. Producer, let's go ahead and take our bottom-of-the-hour break. You're listening to Inside Track. When we return, author Chris Blattman joins us to talk about his new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We celebrate independence on the 4th of July, but do the fireworks represent the meaning today? Let's join together Monday, July 4th at 10 a.m. in front of the Udall Park Recreation Center for a community reading of the Declaration of Independence, copies provided. That's Monday, July 4th, 10 a.m. at Udall Park Rec Center. Look for the flags and come say the words yourself. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or wilkinsonwealthmgmt.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Our guest for the rest of the show today is author and University of Chicago professor in the Harris School of Public Policy, Chris Blattman. His book, Why We Fight the Roots of War and the Paths to Peace, has been recommended uh, strongly, I might add, by the Financial Times, the Los Angeles Times, Amazon. And I read the Wall Street Journal report of the book, and Chris is uh, very kind to be spending some time with us today. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our last guest was a former U.S. ambassador to the Holy See. I understand your book, Why We Fight the Roots of War and the Path to Peace, is going to be presented at the Vatican shortly. That's that's exciting. How did that happen? Uh, and actually, that was a week ago. Uh, it was, it oh, was a week exciting. ago. Okay. There was, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the building's a little nicer than the one here at East Chicago, I will say. Um, so uh, chris you say in in your book uh, why we fight that war is rare and true it's been nearly 80 years since the last world war but there have been many major conflicts involving global powers since the end of world war ii uh korea vietnam uh we left afghanistan after being there for 17 years we fought a war in iraq uh, now we have war in Ukraine. China menaces Taiwan. Israel and Iran could be at war uh, anytime soon. And the civil war in Syria, although it's somewhat quiet, is ongoing. How rare is war? 
Right. Well, you know, I, I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight, so I don't want to belabor the point too much. But, <laughs> you know, I, like, let the, you know, two weeks into the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, India accidentally lobbed a cruise missile at Pakistan, and peace ensued, as it had, you know, for the most part, for decades between India and Pakistan, because war is unimaginably costly between them. And likewise, you know, for 20 years, Russia and Putin particularly did everything he could to co-opt Ukraine using every uh, underhanded means possible short of war. War and invasion was a, a last resort. And, and Russia, vis-a-vis all its other neighbors, has managed to cow and co-opt them uh, through all sorts of means and hasn't, hasn't needed to use war. And most, most of those, those countries have accepted that interference grudgingly, but they've accepted it. So I, I, don't wanna, so, so I, I think that's the, what I want us to remember, that, that war is often a last resort and adversaries use every other means possible, both, you know, things that are legitimate and illegitimate to, 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 because, it, because war is the worst option. Sure. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, as I mentioned before, had a great review about why we fight. Uh, I enjoyed it. That was the reason that I contacted you. And, and by the way, uh, your, um, your publicist or assistant um, uh, contacted me almost immediately, and I, I thank you for that. Um, uh, you were described uh, in the um, Wall Street Journal piece as a political scientist and economist. And I think you, one of your specialities is uh, game theory. How does your game theory discipline define uh, part of your thesis in in book Why We Fight? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like my day job as an academic is actually working in a lot of civil wars, gang conflicts, ethnic conflicts, trying to find ways that build peace and test them. But uh, and so I'm not a game theorist per se, but I use it, and I need that. I need a lot of. It. I need that, and I think I need psychology to understand the causes of war and the causes of fighting in order to design things that are effective. Because essentially, game theory is just the science of strategy. It's saying that uh, it's it's helping me think systematically about the reasons that two adversaries might fight, even when, as I mentioned, it's not really in their interests because it's so unimaginably costly. And so, game theory gives us arguably two or three reasons for war. One is uh, uncertainty. It's the idea that this is an uncertain world. I don't know how strong my adversary is. I don't know how, uh, what, what exactly their resolve is. And I can't trust what they tell me because they might be bluffing, right? And so anyone who's ever played poker understands this sort of science of strategy and the fact that it's never optimal to fold all the time when you know your opponent can be bluffing. And, just, and it's never optimal to bluff and call all the time as a strategy. And so you, you, you sort of, you, you're going to gamble. And so uncertainty means that war is essentially uh, uh, something that you try sometimes as a gamble. And so that's one of the insights I think that we get from game theory and we get several others. But if we don't recognize that uncertainty uh, and, uh, and how that can lead to war, then how are we going to do anything against it? How are we, we going to work against that? How are we going to, uh, we, we need, to, our treatments need to match our diagnoses. And so that's kind of what I find in my day-to-day work, whether it's civil wars or gang wars or ethnic conflicts, um, identifying what are the uncertainties. This is what mediators essentially do. Um, and so, so I think, you know, and, and, and so I think that's how it informs my own work. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I don't. We've had you know dozens of guests over the, over the years uh, talking about war and conflict and so on. I, I'm not sure, Bob. I'm not sure we have had a guest that has talked about uh, the game theory. Uh, Chris, are you a poker player? 
<laughs> I'm actually not a very He's good an poker economist. Player. Of course he is. <laughs> the problem um, is if I play poker, I'm playing with other economists, and they're always far better. If you want someone who can count cards, play with a, play with a true economist. So, so what could America and the other countries uh, in NATO, uh, our allies, and also in the EU done to avoid a war in Ukraine and um, the second part of that question is, how do we prevent the next war, whether it be uh, China and Taiwan or Israel and, and, and Iraq, uh, excuse me, Iran? Uh, any thoughts on either of those two topics? So when I think of Russia's reason for invading Ukraine and when I think of the potential of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, I think there's, there's two really important factors that are really difficult for the United States or the rest of the world to counter. The first is that these are countries that are autocracies, particularly in the case of Russia, which is a much more personalized autocracy around the power of the person, Putin, than, than in China. What that means is that, uh, and this too is another insight from game theory in some sense, is that they're unaccountable. They don't have to pay all the costs of war. And so why would they consider them? And so they're, they're probably going to be too ready to use violence simply because they will not personally bear all the costs. And that's, that's a feature of, of autocracies and why I think autocracies are much more likely to go to war than democracies. They'll, they'll both do, as you pointed out earlier. The sec- and, that, and, and, there's, and there's not a lot the outside world can do about that except try to change the incentives of those autocrats through something like the promise of cohesive sanctions regimes or the potential to be prosecuted in international courts. And here we've seen sanctions being wielded in a, an effort, a failed effort, but I think a correct effort uh, to, to try to deter this from happening. The second thing is that is very hard to counter that seems to be, be partly true in the Russia case, and I think is extremely true in the Chinese case, is a deep ideological commitment to uh, the expansion or, the, or, or that territorial acquisition. And this is particularly true. Taiwan is seen as a, an essential part of China. And, uh, and, and in some sense, there is a leadership that is in a population that seems to be willing to pay any price to acquire it. Right, and it helps that the leaders don't have to pay a lot of the costs of war. So they actually, the price they have to pay isn't as severe as, as otherwise, as if they were truly accountable. So basically, pay any true. price as long as it doesn't affect them. Well, I think they'd be willing to. You know, it's hard to say, right? This is a very closed, small leadership circle in both countries, and so I don't think anybody on the outside. I don't. I'm not even sure if our foreign intelligence agencies have a. Our sorry, our intelligence agency have a have a good have a good sense of exactly how how powerful this this desire is and, and how true. But but they certainly will be way, willing to pay some price for it, and and so this is very difficult for the rest of the world to to change. I think they can try to reduce some of the uncertainty. They can try to um, they can try to change the calculus by promising sanctions. They can pr- try to arm. Uh, in this case, arm the Ukrainians, uh, arm Taiwan, arm some degree of uh, maybe put more U.S. military installations and, and investment into the into the region as a deterrence. But if if this if this is if this unaccountable, unchecked leadership is really wants it, I think it's going to be very very difficult to deter them. Chris, one last question for me before I turn you over to my colleagues. I watched a panel that you uh, sat on, and I think you said that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin tried everything he could for almost 20 years to avoid war in Ukraine. 
Why do you think he finally decided to invade Ukraine? So <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, I think we're going to be asking this question for a long time. A lot of people are very confident in the answer. I think we really don't know, just to start. Uh, I think a lot of people underestimate the uncertainty of the situation. Just think about five months ago, how uncertain it was. Russia's military capabilities, Western's unity of Western response on sanctions, uh, Ukrainian luckiness resolve capability of its military. And the idea that Russia would get a bad draw on all three uh, was always within the realm of possibility, but I don't think anyone predicted it, least of all Vladimir Putin. And you add to that uncertainty what we hear, which is that he is an isolated, insulated autocrat who's getting biased information. So now in this uncertain environment, not only is it a gamble that he may take because he simply doesn't know uh, the resolving capabilities of his side and, and, the, and his opponent, but he's getting biased information. And then you add to that the lack of accountability for the costs, uh, and you add that to that, his ideological interests in either personal glory or national glory for Russia. And I think there you have a mix of there's sort of two strategic, i.e. game theoretic, and two more psychological explanations that interact. And that, to me, helps us get to the invasion. Most people dwell mostly on the psychological, ideological objectives and the misperceptions and the bias. And I think we have to pay attention to the fact that he's also unaccountable and that the situation was fundamentally uncertain. Did 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 Putin? Uh, I'm sorry. I, I promise this is this is the last question I have for you. Did Putin perhaps look at the situation, the political situation in the United States, as well as sort of a, the, the softness of our NATO allies, and say, "What the hell"? So this is an. I mean, I think this is a. There was a tremendous amount of uncertainty about. U.S. And, and NATO resolve, uh, both in terms of sanctions and in willingness to support Ukraine. Indeed, I don't think even the I think even the Americans and the American government wasn't quite sure what its response would be in advance. And, and it was quite surprised to see Russia stumble and, and Ukraine do so well. And so they belatedly decided to really come to their aid. So I think it's another example of this sort of tremendous uncertainty that our policymakers have to deal with. And I think we're very quick to sort of look back when things go well or things go poorly and say, oh, that was a good decision or that was a bad decision uh, based on the outcome when, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think we always have to try to look at these things and judge the quality of that decision in this highly uncertain environment where everything's a gamble. And in, in that sense, I actually think, you know, the U.S. was correct, was, was sort of strategically, I think it was the right decision to sort of be supportive, focus on sanctions, not necessarily arm Ukraine as a major deterrent, you know, and then once once the, the, the strength of one side and the weakness of the other was, was revealed, change course and decide to sort of really try to back Ukraine in this resistance. So well, I'm uh, going to turn you over. I'm going to turn you over to Ab Wilkinson, a uh, uh, Marine aviator and uh, uh, retired Navy Captain Bob Wells, uh, who also worked uh, in the NSC. They'll ask you some smart questions. I'm just uh, I'm just the the, the goofball who uh, organized the interview here today. So Ab and Bob, go ahead. Yeah, I was uh, I was actually in the Marine Corps because uh, apparently if you can't read, that's where you go. Uh, otherwise, you're in, in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've got you've got Putin that for you know basically since nineteen you know basically since you know nineteen eighty nine uh, uh, you got Gorbachev getting out at some point Putin gets in he's not doing anything under a couple of presidents and then under 
uh, our current uh, Brandon administration, you've got mm-hmm. him invading the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And he, how much of this, I, I know you're an economist, but at some point, economics goes out the window when you've got two guys filled with testosterone trying to figure out who's the biggest dog on the block. How right. much of that I, was this? So, you know, I, the, a lot of the book, a lot of the research I delved into gets into the psychology, collaborate with a lot of psychologists. My own personal view is that, and I think the research supports this, is that I think individual emotions and and stature and, and posturing matter a lot for interpersonal and small group conflicts. I think in these, I'm a little more skeptical that, that these are so determinative in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a, in, at this level. Now you've been inside these situation rooms more, more than me. So I, I mean, I'll defer to you in that sense of you've seen otherwise, but I think I, I, I lean more towards the, I would say that I, I would say they're probably what, what do I think is like a stronger motivation for Putin rather than just sort of aggression? One would be Russians identify with Ukrainians more than any other people on the planet. And Ukrainians threw out Russian-facing leaders in two democratic revolutions uh, in the last 20 years. I think that's a real threat. I think he perceives that as a real threat to his regime as a potential democratic icon. So there's a real interest in exterminating that. Exterminating that. I also think he has believes a lot of his own propaganda on uh, on 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 this being Ukrainian territory, and and I think he deeply wants to have more of a control of his own sphere, just like the United States likes to have dominance in its own backyard. And so for me, these probably exceed a lot of the more sort of emotional, psychological motivations for most leaders. But but again, we don't know what's going on in his head. So with that being said, you know, you've got Putin in a way, how much of this could be economics with Putin saying, you know what, Ukraine is, has a lot of natural resources. I'm going to take that over. I want to get the band back together, if you will bring back Ukraine, bring back Latvia, bring back Georgia, bring back Romania, bring back Poland, and and gain economic control over that, is that more, would that be more of an economic-based conflict, or is that more of a, uh, I'm in charge, so that's what I want conflict? I think... Or is that uh, even a good I mean, question? No, that is a good question. I think there's, I, so I think that economic control is an advantage. Do I think that's, have I seen anything that suggests that's his chief interest? I, I mean, does the United States, would the United States be panicked if, 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 um, if, the, if Mexico was essentially slowly going over to the Russians or to, the, or to China? I, they would. Why? Because this is a, a hostile power that has an incredible amount of influence right on its border. Um, now, it already has that to a degree with the Baltic countries, right? But it doesn't want this to go even further. And so is that a economic argument or is that a is that more of a national security and political argument and a and a desire for strategic reasons to be able to control your own backyard? That strikes me as potentially the more that and whatever whatever sort of national glory and identity is tied up. So I, so for me it's a little bit more psychological and political than it is economic. And then where the economist comes in is the economists just say, well, we value what we value. Maybe you value power. Maybe you value control of your own backyard. Maybe you value something that's actually material, like the economic well-being. But the economists then are, are good at sort of introducing this, the game theory, or introducing the science of strategy and helping you think through 
okay, like what deters actors in those situations and, and what fails to deter them? Bob has a question for you. Bob? He, Bob's the smart one. He's the Navy captain. Well, I've been in the Situation Rooms, and I find your, your book in terms of uh, unchecked interests and looking at what Putin is trying to achieve with territory and also the uncertainty of circumstances and what is compelling uh, for policymakers and, and military uh, capabilities to basically be part of the pushback. And I know you know uh, Robert Kagan, and that's the fundamental with regard to the world America made and the jungle grows back and why we need to tend tend the jungle, but we're fighting now. We're trying to basically check Putin with regard to territory, but what do you see uh, from your book, uh, The Path to Peace? So I'm a little pessimistic um, for, for a couple of reasons. One is I think there's both a strategic and an ideological reason for Ukraine and the West to, to, to basically not seek a settlement, uh, like a, a stable settlement. Mm-hmm. One is, the strategic one is to say that, like, if you, if the United States and if the West and if NATO and, and Ukraine do not stand up to a power like Russia, principally because Russia is nuclear, a nuclear power, mm-hmm. this sends a signal to every other state that does or does not have nuclear weapons that, aha, this is the payoff from from nuclear armament. I need to either acquire these or I need to build more of these. And so there's a real incentive there to not let Russia uh, keep territory and essentially be rewarded for this simply for strategic reasons, uh, because we don't we, we want it. We don't want to send that signal to every future potential pariah state or autocrat. Uh, secondly, I think, and what's more apparent in social media and the press is the obvious sort of like ideological commitment and horror that people have to the idea of of sort of honoring this illegal invasion with with like a territorial reward. Uh, particularly, Ukrainian people seem very, very opposed to this. And so that makes me think the more likely outcome is a frozen conflict, one where in some, I hope in a some number of months rather than some number of years, this looks perhaps like the next Kashmir, where Russia simply occupies this territory and nobody officially recognizes it and they refuse to, uh, and, 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 a, and an official settlement isn't possible. And that still strikes me as like somewhat optimistic scenario because there's that's because that scenario I just laid out is one where at least there, there's no massive fighting going on. Basically, the, the, certain, the next battles are decided and, and it sort of settles down to a stalemate, an unofficial one. Um, the worst outcome is where that occurs, but then there's a sort of a continued proxy war and an insurgency, and this this war stretches into the years and into the tens of thousands and hundreds, sorry, the hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, and and I think, in some sense, that I think both those scenarios are possible. So, what about avoiding the road to any war in general, and just not with mm-hmm. Putin? So, um, in some sense. Using, in some sense, use like organizing uh, a, such a coherent sanctions regime and sending a signal to future um, invaders that that this will be extremely painful and much more costly than they anticipated is uh, a path to peace. Um, so is demonstrating resolve and commitment to not uh, giving territorial rewards. That's 
but that's a that's a long run path to peace that requires a lot of short run pain and conflict. Um, I think in a situation where you don't, you know, I, I think the fundamental problem here that is not typically a problem, but is a problem when there's a great power involved in this case, Russia, is that our our international institutions are basically designed not to function when one of the UN Security Mount, Security Council veto holders decides that it's in their strategic interest to either invade or support a proxy war. And and so typically the path to peace in a smaller country or, you know, whether if we were talking about the war in Ethiopia or we were talking about war in Congo or things, I actually, as difficult as those situations are, I think we have the benefit of a set of international institutions and tools that can be employed. Um, and the difficult part here is that doesn't exist when we're talking about great power conflict. Chris, we've got four minutes and 30 seconds left. Bob has some more. I really liked your points uh, that I read in the review concerning Haiti. I was actually in the Clinton administration at the State Department, actually did a lot of the Paul Mill to support Colin Powell uh, mm-hmm. and his particular engagement with the Haitians and looking at the 82nd Airborne on the runway, you know, two hours pri- prior that we're heading down there. But I think well, I think that particular point you make uh, and why we fight and what we need to do uh, with your principles now, with the unchecked interest, with territorial uh, desires, in particular with China, because everyone is seized with uh, China and Taiwan, and looking at the lessons of Ukraine, which actually turn the lights on the room with regard to how to think realistically, and finally how to reduce risk, you know, the uncertainty uh, that comes from policy making. So, the importance of Haiti, could you just uh, talk about why it was so important and why you use it as an example in your book? Right. So I, um, I, I, you know, every school child is going to learn and and will learn about the, the the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq for the next few generations, and none of them will learn about the America's invasion of of Haiti, which is this event, as you mentioned, 1994, dictator takes power in a coup, and under with sort of UN backing, uh, Colin Powell and I believe Jimmy Carter mm-hmm. and others go and 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 um, and show. I understand. Show him a video and say this is this is here's here all these 82nd Airborne and so forth taking off and 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 by the way this isn't a live feed. This happened some hours ago, and and he effectively capitulated right there, and and it's it's a reminder. Of and he capitulated because just the fight would have been unimaginably costly, and uh, and so it is this a reminder that number one war is costly, and so most of the time we don't fight. But it's a reminder of just how we're, we're sort of biased to remember the that w- the times we do fight and forget these quiet moments of compromise, and we're also biased to remember the long wars. I think most people are surprised to learn, like over the last two hundred years, the average war is. Uh, is a, is is a, is about a hundred days long, and results in you know deaths in the hundreds and rather than the thousands. So we most of the time we don't fight, and when we do fight, most wars are short wars. Um, but we just tend to remember the long wars. And I, I wanted to, I want we have to we have to focus on the long wars, just like as a doctor you have to focus on terminally ill patients. But we shouldn't forget that the short wars and the non wars exist. And some of those short wars, not only do we not remember, we never knew about to begin with. Right. I mean, a lot of the... Exactly. Exactly. So, Chris, uh, we're down to the last minute and 38 seconds. Um, Mm -hmm. Where can people read more about you and what you're doing? Sure. Well, the book is in booksellers everywhere, Why We Fight. I 
I'm on Twitter under at C Blatz and, and I blog and, and write and I post links to a lot of my op-eds at chrisblatman.com. So uh, certainly welcome any interest in the book and any interest in the audience. And I re- welcome questions by email as well. Chris, this has been great. Love to have you back on the show again, um, combining economics and uh, and the military and everything else. Very intelligent. And, you know, coming from an area from, you know, I'm, I've got an economic background, but still to be able to see that used in war and everything else, fascinating. Uh, so we're at the time where we've fought with the clock. The end of the show is here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, your book, Why We Fight. The Roots of War and the Path to Peace is important as we face threats across the globe. Get it everywhere. Insiders, on behalf of my broadcast partner, Bruce, and along with our National Security Advisor, uh, retired Navy Captain Bob Wells, we hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, Ambassador Francis Rooney and the author of Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Path to Peace, Chris Blattman, our show's broadcast both on KVOI website and on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Close to 130 Inside Track episodes are now on the Apple Podcasts. Until next week, when we have another great show planned for Inside Track, this is Eb Wilkinson. Bob Wells. Bruce Ash. Thanks for listening to us today. We'll talk to you again in 167 hours. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing. And then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you think what's happening in Ukraine can't happen here, think again. Look who's occupying the White House. This is one of many things our forefathers predicted and ensured those rights in our Constitution. We manage money for gun owners. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com.